time I was uh, reconvening, like Wayne was doing today, and um, I said to the church, um, I was, they had the gathered community there, I said, if you're not a believer, don't, don't break bread with us. But this is something that believers do together because it is a celebration of the finished work of Christ, something he's accomplished for us. It's not for you if you're not a believer. And um, the week after this guy, one of the guys came up to me, he was, he was super offended with me for saying this to you. He was kind of one of those guys who he knew he wasn't a follower of Christ, but he was coming to church and he kind of felt like, if I put the effort in to be here, I could get bread and, and juice as well. Do you know what I mean? So he was like, it was more than that. He obviously he was angry with me and he was, he was kind of winding me up a little bit. And I said to him, I said, well, why are you so offended? If this means nothing, if you don't believe in this, then it means nothing. Then what's the point of you sharing in it? And if it is what it's supposed to be, then it belongs to those that have actually shared in the, um, this, uh, this covenant with God. And they kind of <laughs> walked off and then sat down this chair next to his wife. He was a, a believer and a member of this church. I told him what I preached on at the end. I did a, an invitation call for those who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and he responded and came up. And I said to him, his name was Derek, is still Derek. I said, Derek, what are you coming here for? Are you coming here um, to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he said to me that I am. And that day he received Christ and he was filled with the Holy Spirit and, uh, and his life was never the same after that. And I, I kind of compare that to um, another guy that came into the life of the church. Um, in fact, I met him, he was at school with me and I met him subsequently. I've shared the story before. We were at a bride together which for those of you that haven't experienced that glorious and wonderful thing called the bride, is a barbecue, but in much better than that. And um, we were sitting at a table together, and this guy's name is Grant, and Grant was um, well ahead of me in the beers game. I have to say, he was, um, he was six mil or something like that, and he was going for it. He was telling story after story. He is a storyteller. Um, F-bombs here and this and that and the next thing. And eventually he turns to me and says, So Rob, what are you doing now? I said to him, oh God, I'm, I'm actually pastoring this church. He said, no, it's the way. He said, I'm a Christian too. <laughs> and he said to me, I, I didn't know what I was in this moment, he said to me, well, can I join your church? I said, what? And I went, what? Like, what are you talking about? And so, um, I mean, I have to give you a credit. He phones me during the week, like on Tuesday or something. I get this call in the, the church office. It's Grant. He says, I, I, I want to I join your church. Well, Grant, maybe you should have visited before you join it. Just come along and see what's going on. And so Grant started coming to church, which I was pleased with, obviously. And uh, then one day I'm, I'm preaching this message, and it was a gospel message. Um, and I, um, and I, you know, sometimes when you, you preach the gospel, you, you can feel a bit intimidated because it is it's a, it's a, it is incredibly good news for those that receive it. But for those that reject it, it's, it's not good news. It's, it's a, the, the outcome is, is a very negative one. And... Uh, and this guy, after the meeting, I kind of went walking through, and I went to see Grant. I went up to Grant, and I said, hey, Grant, how are you doing? He said, hey, Rob, great, great speech, or whatever it was, great lecture, or something like that. And I wanted to take him and slap him around the head, and go, what are you talking about, great message? I told you you're going to hell. I want you to be angry with me, or tell me I'm a liar, or something. Don't just sit there and just say, oh, he spoke well. And uh, some guys, I mentioned that this morning, and some, I think guys, some guys misinterpreted because people were shouting out all the time, great message, great message, great message. I, I don't mind if you say it's a great message if you're a believer, but what, rang, what, what makes it difficult for me is that you could sit there week after week after week and hear the gospel being proclaimed and, uh, and not be offended if you are 
not receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. If I continue to do that, or at least be challenged, or at least be, be like, well, like, uh, there's a, a conviction that you preach with, and I'm not sure about it, but, uh, but I want to talk more about it. And, um, and that's what I want to speak about today, is, is about the call upon our lives to compel people to come to Christ. And uh, Jesus, um, I think, teaches us so wonderfully in this passage in Luke 14. And uh, I want to talk about the fact that the call to bring people to Christ or to personal evangelism. And I use that because um, it is important for us to understand that it's for us, that it's something we do. Even when we do it in something like Alpha, like Wayne said, you've got to go to somebody with that invitation. You've got to step perhaps out of your comfort zone. On that little um, leaflet there, we don't have a web address or anything like that for Well of Life, because obviously it's not exactly legal for us to be doing these things here, whatever way that is. But it, what it says is, speak to the person who gave you this to RSVP. And so actually it's, it's you. This is on you. And uh, even, so even inviting somebody in, whether you get to sit with somebody over a coffee table, if uh, you ever have one of those unsaved boyfriends that, um, that your messages are played over and you get to then spend the time with them, whatever it is, it's on us. But personal evangelism is the unavoidable, urgent, unrelenting, spirit-empowered task of every believer. So let's look at um, Luke chapter 14. I'll read verse 15. I just want to look at verse 1. Um, the second is over there. Verse 1 says it was a Sabbath day. And Jesus had been invited to dinner at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. And uh, it's always good to go to dinner at somebody else's house. First of all, you don't have to cook. Second of all, you don't have to clean up. You're probably going to get some special food. Um, this week, Douglas had some pork belly in the office uh, with some homemade um, jam chutney. Um, that's fantastic. So thanks so much. And, um, and I know that in the time that we house to eat, it's, it's always a feast. And so it's always good to go to somebody house's, somebody's house to eat. But this was the house of the Pharisees, or the ruler of the Pharisees, and, it says, and they were watching him. Now, that's not quite as comfortable. You're going to dinner, people are like, keeping an eye on you, so every mistake you make and what you're going to do. And Jesus is just that kind of guy, and he takes every opportunity to, to take religious people and rub them up the wrong way. And so the first thing he does is he heals somebody on the Sabbath right in the home there. And uh, the Pharisees are like, screaming from their ears. And he gets too full of pride, and so he tells a story about the fact that they, um, that you must be careful when you go to a, somebody's house for dinner, don't sit in the, in the place of honor, sit in the lowest place, and your, your host will come and go, Alan, why are you sitting down here? You're my man. Come here, put you right next to me in the, in the top row. Get her that way. And so one of the Pharisees saying this, and remember the disciples were there as well, says this. He says um, in verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed, blessed is the man who will eat in the feast of the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. And in those days, what would happen is there was always double invitations. So an invitation would go out to say, um, I'm planning to have this incredible feast. I'll let you know exactly when it is, but I want you, you know, you kind of pre-confirm that you're going to be there. And once I've got all the fatted sheep and the calves and, you know, uh, what a feast that's going to be, all together, then we'll be ready to eat. And he had sent the servants out now to give them an invitation. But all the life began to make excuses. But they all, all of them, and he even highlights three of them. The first said, 
I just bought a field and I must guarantee it. Please excuse me. What? That's a family rubbish excuse. Who buys a field without seeing it first? He's never going to buy it and then, and then he's seen it already. It's just, it's just a ridiculous excuse. His mate is no better. He said, I've just bought five oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. That's the most rubbish excuse of them all. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. For, he said, what he had ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told the servants, go out to the, t- to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in. Compel them to come, says one translation, so that my house may be full. And Jesus, in the beginning, though, the next slide, please, is not suggesting that the man is wrong when he says, blessed is he who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. In fact, um, Jesus goes on straight up to tell of a parable about a great banquet that many people will be invited to. This is not some small little casual affair on the side, like, like uh, when Hannah gets married one day and she comes to me and she's, you know, with all these friends that she won't have at the, at the wedding, and I'm supposed to be paying for it. And she says, um, we'd like, I'd like to have a grand party. And I'll be saying, you know what's nice? I'm intimate at a wedding. <laughs> you really get to feel it. You know what I mean? And um, that's, but God's not like, this is a feast. And it's, and it's just the biggest banquet hall that you can possibly find. And, it's, and uh, it will be the greatest feast. And Jesus is speaking about this. And John, in the book of Revelation, I love this. And he's taken up to heaven. And he has these series of revelations of things to come and, and also what's taking place in heaven. And at one point in chapter 19, he hears this, like every voice just beginning to shout this, the sound of praise. And it, he said it sounded like rushing waters and thunder as his voice came out. It was, a, it was a voice declaring the praises of God because the bride had made herself ready. And the angel said to John to write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the key words of of God. And so what the man said was true. There is a great banquet and room has been made for everybody. And in fact, the invitation has already been sent out. What Jesus did tell him, though, was the assumption that this man made that he was going to be at that feast. And, uh, and probably many of the Pharisees that were sitting there. I've spoken a lot over the last couple of weeks about um, wrong thinking. I spoke from the, the parable of the four soils, about the seed that falls into the ground but it gets stolen or it, it pops up into life but has no root or is choked by the, by the sea versus the seed that falls onto the, the good soil that produces a harvest of the fruitfulness of a person's life. And um, I spoke about the fact that anything that's faith in the finished work of Christ is, 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 a, is a completely false base on which to think we get into the kingdom of God. True faith which includes repentance and which means turning from our way of life towards God or to live His way. It's, um, it's more than a change of mind, although obviously repentance means to change our mind. It involves um, every part of our being turning away from rebellion, from autonomy, and turning towards God. It involves a genuine sorrow for the life that we've lived in rebellion to God. And you know when some people come up and they give their testimony, you know, and they say, well, I was a drug addict, and I killed 15 people to pay for my drugs, and this guy's going to stack a proper testimony, you know? And then one day I was high and I was going to take my life and somebody, and, and I met Jesus and he kind of goes, wow, 
and as he dies on the cross, his righteousness, his paying for the sin, his fulfillment of the law becomes our righteousness and our fulfillment of the law. And uh, he's our substitute for says all of our sin became his sin, as it were. And he bore the punishment that we deserved. And so this gospel is a glorious and wonderful thing. Let's take it. And whenever Jesus is, is teaching, he's always doing more than one thing at once. He's warning the Pharisees and perhaps the disciples as well about this hypocritical view that they have and this idea that they can get saved in any way by works, which he cannot do. But at the same time, he's instructing his disciples and he's instructing us. He's telling us that, that I am and you are the servant that has been sent out to compel them to come. That, that is not somebody else. That is you and I. The Master said, go out and make them come. James Merritt says, evangelism is not a gift. It is a responsibility. In fact, one of the marks of a person, of, uh, the mark that a person is truly a disciple of Christ is an interest in and a practice of personal evangelism. An idea that James Merritt makes that comes from Mark's Gospel in Mark 1, 17, when Jesus goes to the disciples and says to them, Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You see, if we're following Jesus, we are fishers, we are fishers of men. We're engaged in evangelism. And so I go as far as to say that if we are not fishing, we are not following. It doesn't mean we don't belong to Jesus, but it means that we are not following Jesus. Part of being a disciple is that we pursue him. We walk with him. He teaches us. And it's like, like following somebody on the road, and you're in the car behind them, and and yeah, well, you're right behind Jesus, and you're going where Jesus is going, and then he turns right, and you decide you're going to carry on straight. You're not following. If you, are, if you are a follower of Christ, and if we want to be that, then in some way in our lives, we have to be engaged in reaching the lost. Personal evangelism, gossiping the gospel, sharing your faith, witnessing to Christ, whatever you want to call it, is our call as believers. And I go as far as to say, it's my first point, that it is an unavoidable uh, personal evangelism, evangelism is an unavoidable part for the believer. And Scripture seems it. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells us the reason why we receive the Holy Spirit in this instance, as he describes it, is not so that we can have shaky experiences, and uh, I'm all for that. It's not so that we can um, fall on the ground and whatever, or cry out. It's so that we will be his witnesses. We will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. In uh, and Matthew 28, verse 19, which is called the Great Commission, but it's often the Great Omission, because the church fails to do it. Um, the, 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 the commission to every believer is to go and make disciples of all nations. And it's not that it's so much our ministry, because you might be a prophet, you might be an administrator, you might be a King's Church teacher, or a worship leader, or whatever it is, and you might say, well, that's, that's where my ministry is. I'm a worship leader, I'm not an evangelist. But there are evangelists and there are people that are particularly anointed in this. But every single believer is called to do evangelism as well. In, in uh, Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, in his second letter, chapter 4, verse 5, he says this to Timothy, As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. That's good. Endure suffering. Yeah? Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. And to fulfill his ministry is not to do the work of it. There's a ministry that he's called to fulfill and he's called to do the work of an evangelist. And God will say this to all of us. In our workplace, in our playgrounds, wherever we are, to some extent, we have all got the work of an evangelist to do. Somebody once noted that if an international evangelist were to preach all around the world every single day 
um, that he was alive, um, and he were to preach um, and see a thousand people come to Christ every single month, even without the population growth, it would take that man 10,000 years to reach the world to Christ. But if every believer were to see somebody else saved, and those, that believer then in turn, each year, were to see somebody else saved, and so on and so forth, it would take us 32 years to win the world to Christ. And we know that that is a, um, it's, it's difficult for us to comprehend even winning the whole world to Christ. That there is surely a mandate upon us as disciples, individually, us to be reaching people for Christ. And we mustn't allow our failures in this area or our familiarity to begin to reduce it. I think that what can happen to us is we can try and we cannot succeed. And we begin to think, well, maybe God wants me to do something else. Maybe God's not really that interested in seeing people in Dubai saved. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's for India or um, wherever in your mind, Africa. You know, that's where, that's where the crusades are and people are getting saved. Maybe, maybe it's not to share amongst these people. And uh, what often happens is when, when we face obstacles or even when we've been doing something for a long time, familiarity creeps in and our theology um, can, become, can get lowered and lower and lower. And I want to tell you that God has an absolute appetite to see the, demand, to see the lost state, and it, and, and it places demand upon us to be engaged in that. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, says, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That scripture always blows me away. It's kind of like, like, like God speaking through me. Christ is making an appeal, and I, and I remember, please be saved. I'm imploring you. That word's like begging. It's to, like I'm thinking, like, that's demeaning to use that word for God. I, if I was writing the scriptures, if I was Paul, I would have gone, yeah, I'm using my thesaurus. I'd applaud you. It doesn't seem like the right word. Yeah, I would have been like, like something that's more kind of, like, it restores the dignity of God rather than this, that, I, that I'm imploring you. That such is the desire of God for men and women to be saved, that he implores, he, he almost begs through us that they might come to Christ and be reconciled. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? Luke 14, which I read already. Um, urge anyone who finds to come so that the house will be full. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord isn't really slow, and Peter's talking about his return and the delay of his return, about his promise. As some people think, no, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be afraid, but wants everyone to repent. And in 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It is an unavoidable task. Secondly, it is an urgent task. John 4, probably going to preach on that next week. If I, I'm not going to finish this preach tonight, so anyway, whatever. John 4 is a, is a scripture about Jesus at the world with a Samaritan woman. Um, it's such an incredible text that so wonderfully lays out the, the like practical handle for us to share the gospel with somebody. But when the disciples come back and they see Jesus talking to the woman, and they're kind of missing the point a little bit there, Jesus eventually, verse 35 and 36, says this, Open your eyes and look at the field. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. And friends, if it was, if the fields were right then, the fields are right here. I can, I can remember 
Um, you, you know, we, we hear, use this phrase, I don't know if you've heard it, called open, this phrase called open heaven. There's some idea, I suppose, I don't really know where it comes from, but the idea that, that in some places it's easier for God to have access to people and to have His way. And so you would think that a city like Dubai would not have open heavens and a nation like South Africa that our Christian heritage would have open heavens. Anyway, we have different opinions. But I, when I arrived in Dubai, I couldn't believe how many opportunities there were for the gospel in this place. I couldn't believe how often I got to sit with somebody over a coffee table at, at Starbucks, and I still drank Starbucks coffee in, uh, in Mall of the Emirates, and, and sat there sharing the gospel with a person over coffee, and, and even praying with them at the table to receive Christ as the Lord and Savior. The harvests are white, but we would just lift up our eyes to see what's around us. As I drove um, in here um, this morning, uh, along a Murabia like that, and those, those traffic lights, those demonic traffic lights that take so unbelievably long. I, I was falling down the fire of heaven. Like, God, don't hurt anyone, but kill the traffic lights, burn them. And, um, but as, this, oh, as I got over my station, walking along, um, as you could, I mean, obviously people could walk past. I think 2,000 people actually went past me in that time. And um, I was thinking, every one of them, the Lord wants saved. Everyone, and uh, and I was thinking about the harvest field. Lord, how do I, how how can I be a part of that? How can I? How can Rob Hutton take responsibility? I saw one man walk in. I, I imagine like he's a father, and his and his wife and his children are probably back home in India or wherever he comes from. Thinking about this, this is a man, and and it's easy to just let him slide by and not worry about them. But every single one is a human being created in the image of God, and. This gospel message is urgent because we have one opportunity in this life to receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. A couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with a lady in the church here. She's a Hindu woman, and um, she wanted some prayer for some stuff. And I, and, I, and I said to her, I said to her, you know that we have preached on Christ today on the gospel. I said, but you don't have another opportunity. This life is the only life you have to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because this demonic teaching that we have a second chance, and reincarnation means that if I mess it up in this life, I can get it in the next life. And yet the scripture says it's appointed for man to die once and then to face the judgment. And I, and I appealed to her, and I was, I was compelling her to come to Jesus Christ. And uh, she didn't receive him that day, but I'm continuing to pray for her to receive him. It has to be responded to in this life, and the consequences are eternally significant. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that that Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else. And some people might think, well, that's a, like a, it's a preaching technique. You know, you, you need to like really like lay the Satan quite hard so that they think, oh, wow, I, I better do something about this. Well, that, that maybe Jesus was exaggerating. What he means is something a whole lot different. And there are many, even in the church today, who teach that there will be a second chance and everyone will come to faith and there's not really a consequence on it. So Jesus is not an exaggerator and he's not a liar. And um, I think Jesus was more aware than any human being that has ever lived of what faces those that die apart from him. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, I preached a sermon on this a couple of years ago, about how he prayed, he sits further in the garden um, to have that cup of suffering taken away from him. He, he didn't, it wasn't like, oh, well, you know, I suppose this is something I've got to go through. It was, he, he prayed so hard that in his prayer he began to and it was like drops of blood coming from, not that it was red, but that the sweat was dripping from him like blood would drip from a, a cut open arm. He was, it's, it's, it's like he was in quick anguish and in such 
engagement with God right now. Saying, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup and cut it. And the reason why this most courageous of men who never hesitated to step into anything said that is not the beating he would receive. It is not the crown of thorns smashed on his head or the nails in his hands or the suffocation he would endure. It wasn't the rejection and the slander and the ridicule. It was the fact that the sin of all mankind would be placed upon him. And he understood both the horror of the sin and the horror of the punishment that that sin warranted. And I think Jesus was, was in that shows us how awful, how dreadful it is to die apart from Christ. I'm not entirely sure. I've, I've once in my life preached on hell. Um, and I did have one guy come to me after being an Irishman and said to me, and I'm trying to do an Irish accent now. <laughs> he says, um, he says uh, I think, I didn't really say I think, I just studied Irish way I know. So he says, he says in, I'll do a South African translation. He says, you scared the hell out of me today. And I thought, well, that's a good, good thing to do. But I've also seen um, with a, this production called Heaven Chasing Hell's Flames. Has anyone ever seen that production before? A few of you. Um, I was the devil in Heaven Chasing Hell's Flames. I'm not entirely sure how I got selected for that role. I used to lie in my bath at night and practice my evil laugh. <laughs> oh, poor little kids in the house. I wonder what's going on here. But I'm a voice modifier on me, and I, I had this fluffy makeup on and a thing and the whole outfit and gloves and the one day um, we were doing this in the school hall where our kids met and this, these bombs had flown into the school hall so I was the only one with gloves and so I captured this back like this dressed like the devil in this church and I went out the back of the hall like this and said why you people like this and I could just imagine people driving past and seeing the pastor dressed like Satan releasing a bat from the back of the church hall and um, and I, it was it was powerful it was terrifying I mean, I wanted to get saved again, to be quite honest. It was, it was like our families were being torn apart, and, and I, that will happen. I understand that. And, and, um, and, uh, and there were wonderful moments in the production where those that um, had died, and they went to meet the children that had died before them, and, and there was a reunion again, the, 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 the welcoming by Jesus, and there were these awful moments where people were dragged off in, into hell like this. And um, we saw many people respond to the gospel. My, one of my brothers responded to the gospel. As I said, I mean, you'd have to be pretty stupid not to say yes that night to that because it's like, and even if this isn't true, just in case, yep, I'm in. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, please take me. And so I'm not entirely sure that that's the best motivation, and I'm not ruling it out because if however somebody comes into the kingdom, I'm celebrating with them. I'm just not sure that it's the most effective way. I wonder, though, if part of the reason that we do need to, but there's a preaching hell is for us as believers to understand what it is. For us to understand how, what we were saved from, the road that we were on, and for us to, to, um, to, have, to, to embrace this truth so that we will not um, rest in our complacency and, and, uh, and be careless and, and, um, and worry about you know, whether somebody's going to ridicule us or censure us if we say something. But actually the sun begins to burn inside of us that, that God, this is what they need to be rescued from. And, and what they are brought into is more glorious than we could ever imagine. We get the proof, the good news, so we need to know that without them, it's not like I come to Jesus, it's amazing, and He loves you, and you become a son or daughter. And if you don't, you don't get to the wedding feast, but there's like a little kitchen table where people get to eat that. That's not what's in store for them. There's like this burning house, and they get thrown into the burning house. And they will suffer an eternal punishment. And 
Chevy will, will rub. I'm not sure. It's eternal. I don't know. Matthew 25, verse 46. After Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, and he talks about them being separated in. And he says, they, those that aren't believers, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. And if we believe in who Jesus is sick, teaches us that what we, when we are born again, we enter into eternal life and we will live forever. And we have to hold to the corollary that those that die apart from Christ will suffer eternal separation from God. Whatever that means, it ain't good, and we need to contend for people to be saved. There's a version of Romans that I've never understood. I, well, I, I, I do now. I, I explain it is why I do. But I, when I read this, I used to think, something's off here. Romans 9, 2 to 3 says this. Paul writes this, and he says, My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. Good. Paul, that, I can give you an amen there. That makes sense. I would be willing to be forever cursed. Whoa, Paul. <laughs> what are you saying now, bro? Be careful. Cut off from Christ. <laughs> Paul, don't say that. If it would say then. And I honestly, I used to read that and think, he's exaggerating. Or, you know, like Superman is not affected by gravity. Like Paul's like a super Christian. He's like, you know, we're normal Christians and he's super Christian. So he is so surrendered to God, he can say these things. I, I would, like there's no one that I would give up my salvation to. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care. And then whole nation groups are going to go to hell. We're like, bro, you had your chance. It's like, I'm not, I'm not going there so that you can, what? Are you crazy? It's like, I don't, and then I had children. And then I, 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 and I, I can remember distinctly one day as I, I was praying for my children, thinking to myself, like, like a grief, a, a, like, a, like an aching grief if they were to die apart from Christ. And I, and I would. I would say this. I'm not, not stupidly, and I know it can't happen, so it's hard for me to even say that I would, it's not as selfish as it sounds. But, I, but it's there because I can think I would, if it was between me and my children, I would go and spend an eternity separated from God so they would have a relationship with God. And they can't exchange it. I don't get to do that. They, they need to make their own choices and live their own life. But there are things that I can, I can pray for my children to come to God. And I do. I pray, if not every day, almost every day for their salvation. Not just for them coming to Jesus, but for them to work out their salvation. Philippians 2 verse 12, with fear and trembling. Like, to live in the fullness of it, not to dabble in the, in the shallow waters and then to drift away from it and to prove that they were never saved. I pray that they would, that they would verify and prove every day of their life that they belong to Jesus. And then verse 13, for it is God who wills, who, who gives them both the desire and the power to live according to His will. I want to live a life for example. I want to, I want to, um, I want to confront them when they begin to drift away from the things of God. I want to encourage them to read the Word of God. I want to pray in front of them. I want to do all of those things because I understand how awful separation and God is. Not just for this life. I honestly, what is it in this life? And I, and I think going with Jesus is the most incredible thing that could ever happen. I don't know how people stay married without Jesus. I don't know how half of you stay in your jobs without Jesus, without killing your boss. You know what I mean? I, how do we drive on these roads without Jesus? I mean, that's madness. But the life to come is where it matters. Charles Spurgeon says this. It's a famous quote and a powerful one. He says, If sinners be damned, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the truth of our exertions. 
and let not one go unwarned or unchaste. Now, I've been feeling that um, the last while that one of the, it's a, it's a book by Charles Spurgeon, he reads it, Soul Winner. And one of the things that he speaks about is the, is the power of, of spirit. And um, there's something that begins to happen when God's people begin to chase the lost. It's like, like the, the hardness or, the, or the, like the, the distance, I suppose, we have from lost people. The familiarity we have begins to be peeled away as we pray. As we begin to pray for the people around you, as we just begin to spend time with the presence of God. Because He is so, um, uh, has such a passion to see the lost saved. We can't spend time with them without being filled with that passion and with that compassion as well. In uh, Jeremiah, uh, the, the prophet, he, um, he understood his inadequacy. He said, I'm only a child. How can I go and speak? He understood everything. There was the obstacles that were raised against him. And, and you might say, but Rob, I'm, I'm used to sort of remembering scriptures. And you know, the minute I get, somebody asks me, but, you know, but what about you know, where did Cain get his bread? Well, where did Cain get his wife from? Oh, uh, like, I, I don't know what to say when they say things like that. And, and so Jeremiah kind of understood that as well. He understood his inadequacy. He understood the obstacles that he faced. He was preaching to a people that didn't want to hear it. They were deaf. It was like preaching to deaf people. And at, at one point he said, um, he said I'm, I don't want to do it anymore. And then in verse 9 of chapter 30 he says, But his word burns in my heart like a fire. It is like a fire in my bones. I'm worn out trying to hold it in. I can't do it. And we need to come before God and we need to set fire to the notion that God isn't passionately interested in seeing the lost saved. We need to set fire to the idea that it's somebody else's job to do it, that Wayne will do it or Jeanette will do it. We need to set fire to the hellish notion that the consequences of, um, of rejecting Christ are not incredibly serious. I was praying, oh dear, one thing up, please. I was praying on Tuesday, and I'll, I'll finish this week next week. I'll, I'll land here. I was praying on Tuesday, and I, and I really felt, um, I, I felt like God said to me, I want you to wrestle people to the ground on this thing. Not, not hold back, but, but preach this because it's, it's what He wants to say. I, see, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what comes out of like, my enthusiasm or, uh, and my conviction. What matters is the Word of God and what he says. And, um, and I believe God wants to come and change it from the inside out. See, I don't want for three weeks to stir you up and then you're like, woo, let's go. And week lost. And week one, you're like 100%. And week two, you 70%. And week three, you 50%. And week four, all fizzled out. You know what I mean? But when God comes and he changes it from within, then it should be a lifehouse to everything. And uh, we were at um, prayer on Wednesday night. And uh, I want to say, guys, um, you know, Charles Bergen speaks about the fact he was speaking to a bunch of young ministers about this thing of reaching the lost. And he said to them, the one thing that I would do if I was going to um, reach, reach the lost is make sure that I had a prayer meeting going on and have people praying. And I don't know if we can build anything at Lost Men, brother, and if we can make any serious impact and dent the city unless we are doing it as deep as prayer. And I know many of you are spending great years to come to prayer. I'm, I'm always um, so encouraged and, and um, astounded actually in some ways when somebody comes to me and starts praying on the will of life during the day and I have this word for them. Um, I love the fact that the privacy of his home is expedient crying out to God for his presence.